One would need to have the most juvenile, classless sensibilities possible to find any of this trash even remotely entertaining. In other words, I loved it. Yo, what's up? Welcome to Owls at Dawn. We are just two dudes from Southern California who studied philosophy, politics, and religion around the world and decided to start a podcast for a week of bullshit with impunity. I am Austin Hayden Smith. And I'm Troy Polidori. And this week we have a guest, Macon Holt, will be joining us. And we're going to be talking pretty much around his book that just recently came out with Bloomsbury. It's called Pop Music and Hip on UE, A Sonic Fiction of Capitalist Realism. Give people a 30-second pitch. What, uh, what, what piqued your interest about this book and why was this conversation so great? Yeah, I mean, we've already recorded it, so um, we have a, more than a sneak peek into it. But um, if you're interested in the sort of confluence between um, pop music and uh, cultural theory, and especially, you know, if you've listened to the podcast for a long time, you know Mark Fisher's capitalist realism is a, was a big influence on, on the both of us. Um, then this is going to be right up your alley. And uh, I don't know how it couldn't be because those are all great things all mashed <laughs> together into one. That is right. That is right. So, yeah, so stick around for that. It's a great conversation. Uh, Macon's a, a really good scholar and brought in, I think, a lot of really interesting stuff. So, yeah, you'll get a lot out of it. We also want to say, if you want to support us in tangible ways, you can go to patreon.com slash owlsatdawn and get access to goodies like the monthly newsletter we send out with extra sticky leaves and shitty minutes, as well as bonus episodes, which we release about once a month, sometimes more, um, in addition to voting on our next Patreon poll, um, which is where you get to choose the topic that we do for a, an episode every couple of months. That is right. And of course, we have to give a shout out to our sponsor of the episode, Mubi. If you've been listening for a while, Mubi has been a sponsor of ours for a while. They are fantastic. It's a streaming service, an online streaming service you pay a monthly subscription to, but they specialize in independent films, regional classics, Hollywood classics, kind of the obscure auteur films that fly under the radar that those other streaming services neglect entirely, but they give you perfectly uh, 30 perfectly curated films every single day, and they basically have like a what we have termed a slaughterhouse rotation, where one film drops off every day after its 30-day cycle, which means a new film begins its 30-day cycle every day. So there's always a fresh rotation of films to uh, choose from. And we were looking through the library before starting to record here, and I found a film in my library that... Yeah, very interesting is, pick from you this time. <laughs> it's so ridiculous. It's called The Toxic Avenger. And I asked Troy, I was like, bro, you know about... To He's like, a Toxic Avenger, right? He's like, no. He's like, I don't even think I remember this. And I just remember... This because it's like 1984s dudes in like puppet, like the, the silicone puppet kind of stuff. And um, it's basically about like this guy who becomes, he falls into toxic waste and he becomes a superhero after this. And there was a cartoon about this as well. And I remember I had like little action figures and things like that. But this is uh, around this, this time in the 80s when like, you know, He-Man Masters of the Universe is being made. And that it's that kind of kitschy style 
but it's absolutely fantastic, um, and it is one of the films from this kind of infamous production company called Troma, and uh, yeah, so it, this film is directed by the company's founder, Toxic Avenger. It is a very strange superhero movie, but you got to see it because it's just, one, it's a total nostalgia trip, but two, it's, it's one of those films that I have a feeling that if I watch it, I'm probably going to force myself now to think this way, but I'm going to be like, you know what? There's actually something profound in this. And then after <laughs> listening to this episode, you guys are all going to understand what I'm saying because then you're going to be like, oh, I get it. It was there for you. It was a home for you. So this film is like a home for us. So yeah, go to Mubi.com slash Owls at Dawn and you can get a free 30-day extended trial. That's Mubi.com slash Owls at Dawn, M-U-B-I, B as in boy, I, Mubi.com slash Owls at Dawn and you'll get your trial. Yeah, I just want to add, uh, here's a review for Toxic Avenger on the Mubi app. Um, One would need to have the most juvenile, classless sensibilities possible to find any of this trash even remotely entertaining. In other words, I loved it. (laughs) yes that's exactly it that is fucking perfect oh god all right shit i know what i'm watching tonight after i hang up from this call yeah me too i gotta check this shit out i'm actually really excited now all right so we're gonna jump into our show now we gotta jump into things the way we always do with our shitty minute it's where one of us gets to rant and rave about something that's pissing us off so, Troy, you have drawn this week's straw. What is going on, man? Yeah, so I had something else planned, but then as, you know, we'll talk about later in the episode, we're recording this on Wednesday morning in America uh, after Super Tuesday. Um, and I feel like people need a little bit of, I don't know what would you call it, you need to just sort of express yourself a little bit, get the frustration out, but also be willing to just let let the frustration just seep into the atmosphere and not you know, hold it in and not let it sort of ruin your day and ruin your month and then your whole election cycle. Super Tuesday mm-hmm. happened. And basically, mm-hmm. um, for those of us who are, you know, um, on the Bernie side of things, on the, you know, social democracy would be a good thing, at least. Uh, having a inhabitable world or a habitable world in 50 years would be a nice thing. Mm-hmm. Um, not going bankrupt um, when you get sick would be a nice thing. Um, not having uh, $80,000 of student debt, which you'll never be able to repay, um, and have the government make tons of money off of you through interest would be uh, a nice thing to get rid of. Um, <laughs> for people who are on that side of things, it's probably not a great day. Um, mm-hmm. I think a lot of us were on the hype train that's been going on for the past month or so that looked like Bernie was going to sweep most of the states on super tuesday except for maybe a couple of the states in the south like south carolina we knew a couple days ago wasn't going to go um for anybody but biden and probably north carolina and alabama but then um you know massachusetts and minnesota and and texas those were things that i think most of us expected bernie to win and um it's a sad day that he uh didn't win those and there's a lot of you know, yelling and screaming and blame to throw around about why Elizabeth Warren's in the race and the Democratic establishment sort of coordinating for Buttigieg and for Klobuchar to drop out and to uh, give more support to Biden. The fact that Biden uh, basically hasn't campaigned yet at all, um, doesn't spend money on ads, doesn't have any policies that he's um, sort of uh, on the stoop for, doesn't seem to do anything other than just um, talk about random bromides and platitudes that oftentimes he doesn't even finish uh, saying because he can't remember the end of them. Um, it's not a great day. 
uh, doesn't feel really great. But I do want everyone to know that most of the delegates haven't even been apportioned yet. Um, New York is still going to happen next month. There's a lot more time left, and we shouldn't get frustrated and want to give up just because we're leftists, which is like the natural leftist thing to do, right? The second mm-hmm. that there's any like competition or tension to just give up and say everything's fucked and we can't win. Um, well, because it's easy, it's easy to retreat into like horizontal action, right? And to be like, well, fuck, this is just why we are anti-statist, or this is why the state apparatus is essentially mm-hmm. uh, reactionary, or something along those lines. And it's so easy to just be like, okay, so we can go to our local protests, we can organize and organize and organize, because it's safe, and because it it does, it is effective as well as affective in the sense that you do meet people and you connect with people and you have small victories and those things matter but the big victories man they just they kind of like stop your counter hegemonic trajectory and it feels really easy to retreat back into those kind of smaller local horizontal actions yeah you want some something promising look is the democratic establishment largely against bernie yeah i think that's pretty you know uncontroversial at this point um are they like this, these grand conspirators, um, like the Illuminati, who are pulling the puppet strings of the world? No, dude, Biden is their guy. <laughs> they didn't want Biden to be their guy. I'm sure that they wanted Buttigieg to be their guy. And then they realized that wasn't going to happen, and so they had to throw things towards Biden. I don't think Biden even wants to be the guy. He's, of anybody, incredibly reluctant to be president, it seems like. He's clearly doing this purely out of sense of duty. Um, thinking that if he doesn't run, then uh, it's either going to be Trump um, or nothing, because he probably thinks that there's no way Sanders could win anyway, let alone if he thinks Sanders' program is, is positive in any way. Um, mm. they're, they're not grand conspirators. They don't, they don't have uh, a, a grand plan uh, for the next you know 50 years or whatever. They're just trying to keep their paychecks coming over the next you know couple of months, um, which means they're eminently beatable, right? That's the key. Biden is not a good campaigner. He doesn't even really campaign at all, let alone do it well. Uh, He's not good in debates. He doesn't have a message. No one's excited to vote for Biden, right? Almost the reason why Biden has won all these states on Super Tuesday is really just because uh, a bunch of people decided over the last 48 hours to vote for him because Buttigieg and Klobuchar dropped out, right? Um, And so even though I don't want to like spin this and say, oh, no, the bad news is actually good news. No, it's bad news. Um, mm. there's a lot still to happen and we should still keep up the program, keep up, you know, we'll, we'll talk later in the episode about hope and how hope can be kind of an oppressive thing, <laughs> but also mm. there's something constitutive about action, um, that involves hope, right? There's some sense in which you have to think that it's possible to have a better world in order to actually be motivated to go out there and try and make a better world. Um, so we should still have that. I don't think there's any reason to think that, that yesterday was sort of the death knell of the movement. Do you think, I was thinking about this a lot today, and cause we will talk about it kind of briefly in the episode, but I I didn't feel right by a lot of the commentary at saying things like, you know, the people are voting against their interests, um, you know, the working class could have chosen social democracy, but many of them were not choosing that today, even though they didn't understand why ideology is a drug. I saw someone saying it was a pretty pro- uh, prominent commentator. I saw, I saw a bunch of these kind of takes, and this was very common that we saw after Trump's election as well. 
do you think that we just kind of sometimes need to stop and be like, well, actually, no, America is just essentially a very conservative country, especially in the older populations, and that people know what they're doing. Now, does that mean that they're fucking super genius political strategists that know? No, but there's a sense in which they don't want change. They don't want Bernie. They don't want the word socialism. They want what's easy, what's comfortable. They want... Um, whatever it is that they feel that they are getting by aligning themselves with Biden. Not that they're like super enthusiastic that it's a movement in the way that Bernie, the Bernie movement is clearly much more kind of emotional and much, much more general and much more intense in its appeal. But in the sense that there is a kind of ease with which you can do your electoral duty and do your quote unquote politics while still doing something that you think is going to beat Trump. And they think that maybe they've, they, they, they buy the idea that there are just so many kind of center-left-ish types that it's almost like in the bag, and that's why we got to have someone like Biden because we can't have someone that's too going to rock the boat too much. And someone like Biden has the support of Obama, and he's got years of policy experience, years of congressional experience, years of experience in the White House administration, et cetera, et cetera. So that there is something that we just need to kind of take a look at ourselves. And, and I feel like especially it's easy if you're in your – I hate using the word, but it's – an easy placeholder now in your echo chamber on Twitter where everyone is like a Jacobin reader or they read common dreams or something like that. And it just seems obvious that clearly everybody wants healthcare and clearly everybody wants, you know, a student loan debt cancellation, but maybe that's not the case. Maybe actually the majority of Americans don't want that or the majority of people who are voting in the democratic primary don't want that. I don't know. I'm just saying, but do we maybe need to stop and realize that at some point? No, I think part of that's correct in that, um, you know, it's like small C, very broadly construed conservative is how most people probably are in America, especially older people. And by, by that, we just mean not conservative in the sense of like political ideology, but in the sense of um, status quo is being comforting because at least you know what you're getting. And, yeah. you know, there's something very American about fearing change, even if you think it could be good. Um, yeah. And there's, you know, there's good reasons and bad reasons for that, but that's that's really neither here nor there. But I, I do think that it's, it's wrong to think that... Um, People generally don't want the things that Sanders is talking about. Notice the people, especially other Democrats who criticize Sanders, are, are not saying that his ideas are wrong. <laughs> uh, everyone's very yeah, careful right. to say that these are all great ideas, um, but they think that one, Sanders can't do it, um, meaning he can't win. Uh, and then secondly, they think that um, the political uh, system is such that um, these ideas can never pass through the various uh, mechanisms they have to pass through to become law, like, you know, Congress yeah. and the Supreme Court and whatnot. Um, so they're really all procedural criticisms more than anything else, because I think Democrats largely know, actually, Sanders' message is a winning message, right? He has actual uh, content to his message, which people resonate with, and that makes them motivated and makes them care about the political process for once. Um, just look to the fact that the youth is obviously overwhelmingly for Sanders, more than I think any candidate <laughs> can remember, other than maybe Obama in 08. And Obama only had maybe, what, a year or so to garner that support. Sanders has done it over five years, right? So um, that, that means that there's much more time for that message to seep in and be contentful in a way that Obama's really wasn't, right? He kind of ran as a progressive um, in 07 and 08, but there wasn't a whole lot of content in terms of, um, you know, what, what actually policy-wise is going to change with this yeah. open change, right? Um, so... I think there's a lot to, to be hopeful about and to be optimistic about with that. I think overall, if you didn't if you didn't have the specter of climate change 
on the horizon and this and this need to sort of ramp down uh, fossil fuel production and emission over the next 10 years, I think we could actually be really hopeful and think that, you know, even if Bernie doesn't win now, clearly this movement isn't going away, right? Movements like this, um, they don't evolve in a linear fashion, right? They, they have fits and starts. But when they're this big and they're this strong, um, this overwhelmingly youth-oriented, that's, that means very good things to the future, right? Um, I think the, the obvious uh, counter to that is that climate change is not going to wait um, 10, 15 years, right? Uh, every moment we, we wait longer is worse um, for people in the world. And uh, that makes things a little bit more pessimistic, I think. But um, yeah, I don't know how to combine those two things. Um, there's some good news and there's bad news um, to come with all these things, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's clearly when they do national pollings and things like that, people overwhelmingly say, yeah, they support Medicare for all. I mean, like the number one concern of people when they got out of, especially the early primaries, I haven't seen the exit polls from yesterday, but when they got out of Iowa and New Hampshire, I can't remember, but it was over 50%, I think even some over 60% Iowa, New Hampshire, and then um, what was after that? Well, South Carolina. Um, but I think like the idea was is that, yeah, um, and then Nevada, it was, yeah, that, uh, that Medicare for all or healthcare was like the number one concern for most of them, you know? Yeah. So, healthcare is the number one concern. And obviously I don't think anyone could say what Biden's plan on healthcare is something about it. maybe yeah. a public option, but no one thinks he's going to actually do anything about that. Right. No. He's not going to make that yeah. his, his first year program. Right. No one thinks that. No. Yeah. I don't know. I'm just trying to, I don't want to just completely rush to that judgment that like, today was a failure because of uh you know people just want to like they're they're sadists or like you said they're conspiring or the democratic establishment are spreading lies through mainstream media and everyone is just bewitched by the mystifications like i just don't like those narratives they seem oversimplified and they seem extremely pedantic um or not not pedantic i'm sorry patronizing and yeah. and so I'm 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 trying to work through that. There's got to be something, some kernels that are more concrete that we can that we can think through. You know. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. Yesterday was just a day. Um, it's a big day, but it's still one day in a much larger scheme. We're not going to look back on Super Tuesday in 2020 and be like, that's when everything ended. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, your shitty minute was also my shitty minute, so I'm glad you did your shitty minute. <laughs> yeah, I knew we were going to share this one. Can we also say fuck yeah, California? Fuck yeah, California. Our home fuck, state. Fuck yeah, California. <laughs> yeah, I know. I don't remember it being so progressive. I remember it constantly being made fun of for being like hippie and smoking weed and shit, but hallelujah, I mean, Cali. Yeah, I mean, this is still early morning, so I haven't read up on all the news, but I think what I've heard a little bit of was just that the Latino vote was pretty crazy, right? Yeah. Something like 85% Latino vote was for Bernie or something like that. Maybe that was during a certain age demographic. I don't remember. Sweet. All right, so let's get to this uh, interview with Nick and Holt. Yeah, let's do it. Yeah, y'all are going to love this one. All right, so as we've mentioned earlier, this week on the podcast, we have Macon Holt, um, who is a, a researcher from the UK who currently lives in Copenhagen. Right, Macon? Yes, that's true. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, we're going to talk a little bit about um, pop music and philosophy and sonic fiction and all these uh, new terms that um, at least I have learned over the past couple of weeks. That uh, hmm. and Macon's book, Pop Music and Hip and Yui, on Yui, excuse me. Um, so I guess first of all, Macon, can you give us a little bit of a, a background as to you know, who you are, where you're from, how you got into cultural theory, pop music, 
the two together and all that kind of stuff? Did you just like read Adorno and get really mad? Is that kind of how it works? <laughs> um, actually, yeah. I mean, like the, the first time I came across Adorno was when I was studying um, some variation of music tech in my undergrad. And it was, uh, it was kind of outrageous, you know, like it was in a music uh, industry course. And you're just like, how dare this guy come out of here and like say this is all shit when he doesn't even know what he's talking about? <laughs> and how come everything's jazz? <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then, but also the problem is like that, you know, it, it speaks to the the, uh, the music snob that makes you want to do like the kind of um, the the little uh, the little Easter eggs in the recording booth that you uh, that you uh, that brings you into music technology in the first place. And so you know, after a while, I kind of uh, metastasized, and the further I got into um, uh, the sort of weird uh, side of sound art type things, uh, the more disillusioned I was kind of becoming with how insular it was and. When I was even doing sound art stuff, it was all kind of based on pop music because I was kind of I was just really interested in you know what is all this stuff around us, what is all this stuff that people are actually people are actually listening to, and uh, it was also around the time that the uh, the Tory government came in the UK and the whole landscape of being a weird art person seemed to be very much under well, it was being diminished and purposely diminished in public, and I thought I wanted to actually argue about that. Um, so that's kind of what brought me to it. And then you start to read other stuff and you realize that Adorno's uh, position is going to get you in the same place um, as, as uh, we currently were in some ways. Like all like his earlier, his earlier stances end up um, closing off a lot of things which actually need to be opened up if there's going to be any do, kind of... Do you mind I'm just like, kind of elaborating yeah. what some of those ideas are? What, with uh, Adorno and his yeah. uh, stuff in like the culture industry stuff, I guess? Um, yeah. So, yeah, in uh, this book, uh, Dialectic of Enlightenment, that he wrote with uh, Max Horkheimer back in the, I think, the late 40s when they were in exile in uh, the US, um, basically he says that the the culture industry is a means by which the um, uh, capital is able to uh, kind of placate uh, the masses with a sort of substitute satisfaction is his term. Um, it, it's a... He's very critical in that essay. Um, well, he and Hawkeye are very critical in that essay of uh, catharsis and and the sort of the, the quick relief that is given to you by um, by cultural production. Um, and he's mostly he hates movies, um, but he also hates jazz. And in other pieces of work, he, he there's an essay called um, oh, something about it's in that Adorno collection that gets passed around on the culture industry. And there's one about the the problems of popular music. I can't remember its title. It's got a kind of very specific title. And he basically says that the, he says that there's a kind of like a formal aesthetic critique one can give of popular music that points to its stupefying uh, impact and it, the way it will limit the imaginations in a certain way, which is, which is interesting because for him, it's not, it's not all simple or folk music that he doesn't like. It's the ones that come through this means of production. And mm you can somewhat sympathize with this because you look around, you see there's a lot of trash and it kind of does have that effect. But at the same time you go, I don't know if that's enough though to say that there's nothing here because that would give a bizarre ontological status to these products, which I don't know if they can claim to have. Yeah, that's a good jumping off point. I think the Adornian critique, because from what I take it, if you're going to have like a, like a big all encapsulating dialectic to your book here, um, hmm. It's going to begin with, in in one sense, accepting that thesis, right? The critique yeah. of popular music, but then also seeing where it's lacking and trying to bring that antithesis into um, conversation with um, Adorno's critique, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think that's the 
that that was like the when this was a, the PhD thesis, it was um, it was. Oh, sorry, yeah, I forgot to introduce myself. I just went into a whole history about Adorno instead. <laughs> um, yeah, I did a PhD at Goldsmiths uh, in cultural studies when I was and I was uh, supervised by um, Mark Fisher and Anamik Saha um, there and learned a lot and it kind of it well, yeah, opened up a lot of different things. And then this book is based on a uh, based on that thesis, and yeah, and that in the thesis it was far more about that um, dialectical uh, tension between say. Um, the sort of, uh, yeah, the Adornian, uh, everything is bad because it's been produced badly, um, or like not badly, but uh, within the confines of uh, cultural production that are that are dictated by capital. Um, and then the other one, which is this multiple, uh, ever unfolding um, kind of delusion cultural theory of the 90s and the post new left kind of thing where everything's fine because you can't actually find a structure within which to criticize it because it always defies them. Mm. Yeah, and that is the tension I'm trying to deal with. Like, how can one at one point try to assert this kind of um, standard from which to judge these things as problematic, whilst also recognizing that those standards will always be insufficient and not enough mm. to fully so encapsulate like, the experience? There are like a few different things here. One of them is ontological, like you said a minute ago, mm. that you kind of had a problem with. And if we could go more of a, a post hegemonic route, we could say that that there's always something that escapes. Right, that's something. Mm. Uh, John Beasley Murray wrote a book about post hegemony, and that's one of the things he talks about, mm. drawn greatly from Deleuze and Deleuze and Guattari. And it's that idea that there's always an excess, or like an extra mm. capital space, or like interstitial spaces, something along those lines. So that's the ontological thing. But then the next thing that I really liked, what you were trying to think that space, not think yeah. of that space, but to like think. Yeah. To, that music is a type of thought in itself so that yeah. there is a thought that issues from that excess is that about right yeah that's about right but that yeah and that's and that's really not me that's that's kojo eshin okay. um who is like the the first chapter in the book is about his work um because he 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 argues that music is thinking and he has the he has the different dialectic in his project which is between the uh, music speaks for itself therefore don't try and explain it and the music can be theorized entirely kind of space that he was um, seeing between uh, music journalism that didn't want to talk about uh, dance musics because they didn't have a kind of a, a discursive um, element to them. And uh, the, the theorists who would say, well, if you just understand it this way, then it will finally become understood. He argued that, yeah, this is what, this is what sonic fiction is, like the thinking of that space, I guess. But it's not just that like subjective sublime that is just like just go no. with the flow, man, and just feel it and just be in the just be in the energy, you know. There's still something mm. conceptual. Yeah, exactly. yeah. It's it's the it's the it's the way that it can attach to things, I guess. It's the way it becomes mm. I guess the it's like um it's the way it becomes somewhat sticky, that excess, you know, <laughs> in a kind of mm. gross way. I mean you're just like I don't know, the literal thing of like you know when you're dancing you end up sweating you become sticky you you know you're, you're, the, the excess is manifest in some way um, that's a silly thing <laughs> anyway, oh, yeah. um, but it's the the the, 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 the the too muchness I guess is 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 the thing of it but it, it is again not the you know in the opening to his book which is like the so so wonderfully polemical from the like the late nineties where he just denounces the trad sublime as being this kind of refuge of um, this headmaster of theory. Uh, which is just <laughs> just great, I think, in its mm. its own way. Because yeah, it's not that because just because you will never fully access it does not mean that it's not worth attempting to articulate or access it in its own way. I guess. 
Mm. Yeah, so there's a, a quote that you um, note of his that I highlighted that I really liked. He said that like mm. in cultural studies and in techno theory, cyber culture, um, et cetera, et cetera, mm. there's this idea that like a headmaster, theory teaches today's music a thing or two about life. It subdues music's ambitions, reigns it in, restores it to its proper place, reconciles mm. it to its naturally belated fate. And I thought that was really lovely, especially for some reason then the idea of not just subduing music, but that mm. it goes into its proper place. And so I was yeah. thinking a little bit about there's this prefabricated authority that is saying this is what is the right place for things to be settled and theory's job to situate it there. And so it does yeah. have that that headmaster or that taskmaster. There's like a, a legal juridical authority that is always the authoritarian, the despot mm. or something like that. And I thought that was yeah. really interesting. Yeah, and it's also interesting because then he starts to play with that figure through that work because he then posits the idea that the music itself could be the despot um, or like uh, figures like Sun Ra, for example, the, uh, the jazz musician um, mm. who, you know, built this entire kind of Afrofuturist mythology around himself as a kind of it's a quasi-Egyptian emperor, but from Jupiter. Um, and, 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 you know, he, he always, uh, Eshin describes him as being, um, you know, if he was in Blade Runner, he'd be on the side of the Tyrell Corporation, not the replicants. <laughs> like, he, did, he doesn't want to cast, he doesn't want to cast um, the, the kind of, this sort of struggle against, um, like, the oppression of, of people of color or black people as as a redemption narrative within a kind of white structure. He's like, no, fuck you guys. <laughs> and, and then, and so he's talking about, actually, let's let, let's look at music's despotic potential. And that, and that, that you know, really feeds into the sort of milieu within which um, Eshin was uh, writing at the time and um, some problematic figures that have emerged from that same milieu since. Um, mm. Yeah. Yeah, so can you talk a little bit more about that milieu? Because I, yeah. I've never heard of, is it Kadwo Eshin? Is that how you pronounce his name? Um, Kojo Eshin. Kojo Eshin. Yeah, I'd never even yeah. heard his name before, um, let alone okay. this whole idea of sonic fiction and whatnot. Yeah, well, he's... Um, he was a part of the Cybernetic Cultures Research Unit, um, which was uh, this group of uh, thinkers who were based in the University of Warwick, though always unofficially, as legend goes, um, in the mid-90s. Um, and among the members, you'll also find people like Mark Fisher and Nick Land. Um, and Nina Power and... was the second generation. She was my yes. my She was my oh. external, so. Oh, nice. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, yeah. So, um, yeah, so it's that kind of milieu of actually trying to bring these ideas outside of the academy and make them play in the world in a certain way. I mean, if you try and, and I think that also is kind of uh, sort of somehow um, evident in, in that book, More Brilliant Than the Sun, that uh, Kojo wrote back in, um, back in the late 90s, because that's really impossible to get a hold of these days. It costs about $300. Oh, wow. So <laughs> it's so entirely out of print and they were going to reissue it from Verso, but I just got an email, I emailed them a few weeks ago asking about it and it's like, that's no, not happening. And I'm wondering if it's a copyright issue, but that's a, oh, no. a separate thing. Um, but yeah, so it, it was that kind of like, we're going to uh, bring these, these ideas into the culture itself. And we're actually going to try and circumvent this particular university structure, which I think they did by, um, as again, as legend has, has it, that by moving into a, uh, after they were kicked out of the university, they had moved into a, um, a room of a, a body shop, um, in, uh, by which I mean the cosmetics store in the UK, not a car working place, um, <laughs> uh, somewhere in the, in the town of Warwick. Um, yeah, so again, it was like, and then the Sunlight Cultures Research Unit were the people who gave rise to notions like theory fiction and um, 
and uh, hyperstition, um, which is something I've tried to write about in other places at different times. Um, actually, I guess I could, I don't know, I'm just going to keep talking about those. Yeah, okay. Um, and they're, they're kind of relinks. They kind of link. So theory fiction is this uh, coinage that comes from predominantly Nick Land, but also the whole CCRU, um, which was to say that there was, in the conditions of end of history, late 90s, increasing techno culture, um, the, the, the boundaries between theoretical descriptions of the world and fictional interventions was breaking down almost entirely. And this is captured in the notion of hyperstition, which is a compound of hyper and superstition to say, um, which is to say an idea that uh, manifests itself in the future by its expression in the present. It's that kind of mm -hmm. notion that, you know, a cybernetic system of culture that will feed back and produce its own um, produce itself uh, through various kinds of autopilot processes. Um, and one of the, you know, the banal example of this is the way that uh, the term cyberspace migrates from William Gibson's 1988 novel, uh, uh, Neuromancer, and then becomes the main conceptual dispositive for uh, our, ex the internet age that we are now living in. Um, and so we're always thinking of this bizarre frontier and we kind of live with the consequences of these people who are, you know, terrifying, lonely nerds who've built systems that can um, uh, explore that front, that, that frontier's possibilities for their own personal gain. Hmm. So I was listening to, uh, ironically enough, it was just perfect timing, yeah. I was listening to a little talk uh, by Gilles Deleuze who was talking about the difference between conception, or let's say mm. concepts, percepts, and affects. And he basically mm -hmm. says that philosophy is in the business of creating concepts, the mm -hmm. artist... Uh, creates percepts and he says but music is affective now i've always mm. i've always thought about this as well i've been very very influenced mm. by deleuze and mm -hmm. affect theory so when yep. i see the word sonic fiction i'm mm -hmm. kind of like okay this is interesting but it seems to be too discursive to map onto this notion of affect so can you talk a little bit about how is sonic fiction kind of creative and theoretical and not just simply like unbounded flows <laughs> um, I guess it's it's, it's where you what you think about like how how distinct these fields can be. I, I I think that what sonic fiction does is it allows for to use other Deleuzian concepts a, a kind of point of conjunction to come around this effective experience to to know that you're already. Um, you're already conceptualizing as you're being affected. Uh, I guess mm -hmm. like I would also be like within a sort of Deleuzian framework that these things, whilst yes, you can split them up and see the scheme, there's also a great deal of, well, they're, they're undeniably imminent to each other. Uh, um, and it's basically trying to say that you can conceptualize through these affects, I guess. Mm. Um, and I think one of the ways that um, that Eschen has done it uh, is is by well, I mean, also the, the whole concept of fiction itself. It is an it is an effective medium, um, and so it's about trying to, I guess, place that kind of if not not really perhaps not a midpoint, but sort of overlay, like the the discursive yeah. overlay that uh, that can work through fiction, through the the effective power of fiction and the effective power of um, uh, of music, and then. And kind of flip them through into a the possibility of it being theorized, but as we also know, it's theorized in a sort of speculative vein rather than a descriptive or experimental. 
yeah, yeah, yeah. That's where the experimentation. I mean, do, is it enough in your mind now? Because I know there's different readings, obviously, of the relationship between, for example, desiring production and social mm. production in Antiedipus, right? Is mm. some people would read it that like desiring production, that desire in itself, um, is kind of like the, the the true foundation, the excess, right? Um, mm. And that the social production is like the misrecognition, the um, that which is the domain of ideology, the domain of Oedipus mm. in that particular text. Do mm. you think that there's something, you were talking about like this, um, I don't think you used the word layering, but that there's kind of like a mapping on top of an intertwining and imminent yeah. relationship between concepts, which can be fictive, but then also between like affects, which, I mean, are they also fictive? Are they modified? Like how, how does mm. that relation work? Yeah, okay. Um, that's a tricky question <laughs> but i think i i think i guess i'm going to just like point to just one thing that it isn't like a critique it's just more like a, a, a just a point where i can maybe find something productive to work through but when yeah. you refer to like the notion that some people consider social production to be a sort of misrecognition yeah. i'm like miss according to what because mm. that's the i think that's the problematics i think with lots of people's readings of Deleuze is this notion that He's particularly interested in a, in, in, a, in a sort of pure form of desire. Or maybe that is somewhat present in Antiedipus, um, especially in the last chapter of it. And then I think you get libidinal economy from Lyotard and then it become, then you, you, they kind of reformulate that entirely in A Thousand Plateaus and you don't get that same yeah. uh, goal that we have missed. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, they famously yeah. say that Antiedipus mm. was a tragic failure. So, uh, <laughs> okay, yeah, you know, oh, do yeah. they? Yeah, uh, oh, but... yeah, they say it didn't work. Uh, that's why they had to keep right. going. Yeah, that the okay. that the the volume itself failed at what it was trying to do. They use the word ideology in Antiedipus, mm. and then they intentionally do not use it in Thousand mm. Plateaus because they mm. think that they were still too stuck within yeah. uh, a type of psychoanalytic framework, and yeah. so they need to take schizoanalysis even a step further in Thousand yeah. Plateaus. Yeah. Yeah, they only use it to say it doesn't exist. Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. So I mean, that that, that, that okay. I wouldn't say it's like it's not a total failure. It's like um, just chapter four doesn't really work. <laughs> <laughs> so if we yeah, so I was, a, yeah, yeah. No, go so ahead. Go on. Yeah. No, I I, I um, was going to try and uh, explain something I don't really know enough in enough detail. So you go ahead. Well, that sounds like a great idea. That's what we do in this. I guess <laughs> um, oh, yes, it's the, the the motto. Yeah. <laughs> so it seems like there's a there's a bit of a um, talking about um, you know dialectical movements and syntheses here. This idea mm. of sonic fiction it seems like you're trying to kind of combine it or, or think it um, uh, contemporaneously with. Um, your dissertation supervisor, Mark Fisher's, mm. you know, kind of infamous book now, Capitalist Realism. So yeah. I'm curious, what um, was it? Just the fact that these were the two most kind of dominant uh, modes of like analysis that were in your in your life at the time that made you think I gotta think sonic fiction alongside capitalist realism, or was there a, is there a more involved story or a less involved story than that? <laughs> I think it might be. I think it might be some. I don't know. Uh, well. Yeah, they were the two kind of like dominant things in my head at the time. Um, and I remember like starting off trying to work through the entire thing without sonic fiction as a frame. And that was actually really difficult um, because you keep every time you, you know, this is a thing which I think um, is a strength and a weakness of musicology as usually practiced is it's very concerned with like trying to move away from it, its, its past as, you know, in the same ways that like anthropology is of being very colonialist and being very kind of reductive and um, and sort of uh, stayed in its own canon of worthiness. 
And so that makes it very hard to make somewhat normative claims about this relationship on a kind of vague level to um, cultural and social modes of being. Um, mm. So that was like, oh, so I was trying to work with, okay, pop music and capitalist realism. And this wasn't a problem for Mark Fisher at all, because for him, he would just write the wonderfully acerbic takedown of the things he found to be delibidinizing or mediocre. Um, and for me, I didn't have that same confidence, I guess. Um, <laughs> and or like it just wasn't it's just not my mode of going into it. So every time I'd write down a sentence and try and say, this is what I'm thinking. I'm like, well, look at that 17 different ways. And you just realize you're a like a young middle class white boy wondering why isn't why is everything not Radiohead and that just seems stupid. Um, yeah, he has, he has this stupid. quote, and I can always I can never remember the formulation of it because I actually think it works both ways. But it's either mm. like nobody is bored, but everything is boring, or everyone mm. is bored and nothing is boring. I can't remember which it is, but I kind of like both of them. Do you know the Do yeah. you know the quote I'm talking about? I think I, th I think I do. I think it. I can't say for sure, but given the way he likes to formulate things, I'm pretty sure it would be nobody. <laughs> nobody is bored, and everyone is, and everything is boring. <laughs> yeah, I think that's what it is too. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. super bleak. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> no, <laughs> I remember having a conversation with him once about um, the Black Eyed Peas song um, uh, "I Got a Feeling," um, mm -hmm. which is interesting. I want to talk about that in a minute, but he just—I was talking to him, and he's like, "Yeah, it's so fucking bleak. It's like a Beckett play." And it just is is that it's this um, you know, and I think in many ways it's it's interesting that the like, so the title is spelled I got a feeling as in gotta, g o t t a, which doesn't actually mean have a, it means have to. Yeah, I've got to. to. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it, and then you look at it as this kind of like song that came out in two thousand nine in the as the as the crash starts to bite, and you think this is just like an instruction of like everyone start <laughs> desiring and consuming, otherwise it's. Uh, Hmm. all gonna fall through um <laughs> but uh yeah i don't think that was the well again this is again why it comes with sonic fiction and i actually came about it I, like i'd heard about eshin stuff but i found it kind of uh, very 90s and very inaccessible and then i ended up reading this uh piece um by a uh, german academic called holger schulze who was um writing about eshin's work in sonic fiction and he kind of like opened up a little bit like saying which kind of said like this is really important stuff look at all these important ideas in it but it also doesn't have to be just like that hmm. and so i thought oh i can actually maybe i can maybe use this term to produce a little bit of distance between myself the theorist coming in to intervene in everyone's good time and and the object that i'm trying to say exists <laughs> and hmm. say like between that we can maybe then place this this way of understanding it and if you don't like that story i'll write you another one mm. <laughs> that's the kind I of like that. vibe yeah. yeah yeah so yeah i think that's 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 what i guess it became like this and then i you know dove back into the action stuff with more detail and more attention and it just became like okay this is like super rich and also like look at all the the orientation of this project towards a um towards this I guess like like some sort of Afro future, but it's that now in the context of our, our, our current world of, of like just Black Panther memes that seems somewhat banal because his his is not that. Um, but it's it's yeah just this kind of exciting push towards a different way the world could be, and that I guess is also the maybe yeah to go back to that other question from before that what this does is it just allows for there to be a discursive articulation of those affects um, and. And for it to be 
more or less valid and argued and yeah, enter into a certain process uh, of verification or something. But also that isn't the be all end all of it, I guess. Mm. Yeah, you write um, on uh, pretty early on in the first chapter. I, I So a lot of my work has to do, I, I do some work similarly on the term hyperstition in my book that mm. came out last year. And I'm really interested in the imagination, the power of mm. the imagination. But lately my work has been shifting towards thinking about in a very explicit sense, the logic of financial speculation. And one of the ways that I'm thinking about it is kind of maps onto something you said here. You said um, that for Eshen, the future is the actual territory that is at stake in sonic, mm. sonic fiction. And it made yeah. me think it's the future. Maybe we could even kind of like capitalize yeah. that as, as being something that is essentially almost foreclosed unless we can think speculatively, unless we can yeah. think hyperstitionally, unless we can think according to like a sonic fiction or something similar, mm. a theory fiction. Mm. Because, for example, let's talk about the financial cri uh, crisis and we can talk about mm. the way that financial mechanisms operate, financial instruments operate, mm. is they seem to operate because they're able to inscribe, enclose, and quantify mm. these domains, these territories um, that are as yet unincorporated into the system, but they are these extremely efficient and quick-moving devices, technologies, that are able to inscribe or re-inscribe and mm. then enclose and quantify them into territories that can serve for the reproduction of capital, right? But yeah. it's almost that there's something like messianic, or we could even like use the word like chirotic, like kairos, like a time that is qualitatively mm. distinct or um, some sort of qualitative multiplicity in Bergson's terms. There's just something excessive. I don't, I don't even know what concept is adequate to this, but sonic fiction seems to kind of map on as adding other layers that we can hopefully think from as being excessive of that tendency towards territorialization. Does that make sense? So the, the, the future yeah. at stake is simply... Mm what is so important to think about here because otherwise you just get kind of a, a type of repetition of the same and I can't remember how you talk about it but how it's impoverished by the weight of history yeah. um, there are a couple other really great great things that you talk about how it just that creation itself is is thwarted and foreclosed unless we can think along these terms and that's why the stakes are so high yeah I think that's that's yeah what I I, I think I agree with that a lot, and I think also, uh, yeah, Kojo Eshin would also, well, at least the '90s version of him, which is somewhat in that book, um, would uh, would agree with that as well. And I think it's, yeah, it's because it's, it's it's also so it's so it's such a problematic space as well because you're trying to decide whether or not, like, you basically you're saying I want the world to be different, mm -hmm. and then it's different from how it is now, and lots of people are. If not fine, they are much more frightened of what you're going to in, in, invent. And I, I think, with you know, good historical reason from lots of different, um, yeah, just different histor like horrible examples of uh, of people deciding I would like to uh, uh, produce a future for you now, and you <laughs> are going to go along with it. So, but that is also you know we kind of cowed by that, and I guess that's um, hmm. that's like yeah, what uh, like uh, Cernicek and um, Williams's whole stuff in accelerationism as a leftist project we're trying to articulate as well um, that it was you have to you have to somehow claim that this this is the fight it's not about the um slight improvement it's about the reinvention of this of this future because it's yeah we got we got i don't know yeah it's really tricky because i think there is a lot of political nuance to it because this is 
this mm. is like saying you don't you don't want to just like dismiss and forget, but you also want to imagine a say like if you want to imagine a certain freedom from various modes of oppression, part of that freedom is to not be feeling yourself to be free. Um, mm. And that I think requires a space that doesn't yet exist. Is that because the notion of freedom is already constituted according to a particular type of post-enlightenment liberal conception of individual freedom that is related to like the reproduction of bourgeois mm. ideology or something along those lines? There's there's that um, which I would definitely agree with, and then there's the the way in which it's it's the 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 ability to recall not being in that state or the idea that that state will be taken away from you in some way. So I guess that does li- like yeah. you know kind of it's like the uh, the the effective consequence of rights discourse, I guess. Mm. So. We talk a little bit more about this idea of um, oppression as you're as you're mm. using it. I think this is a good place to bring in um, infinite jest, which oh, yeah. Austin's going to be very annoyed that I want to spend the rest of the podcast talking about. <laughs> I was uh, hoping well, we get to Beyonce's lemonade at some point. So as long as we get to Beyonce's lemonade yeah, after infinite lemonade, jest, I'm yeah. fine. <laughs> okay, good, good, good stuff. Yeah. So, so you take this idea of hip ennui from David Foster Wallace, and uh, yeah. I guess that was in one of his nonfiction pieces. I don't think I've read that that one. Right. No, it's it. It's in um, it's in Infinite Jest. It is. Yeah, I it's guess just, I just wait. It. There's, it's somewhere also like I've got a big block quote I think in the chapter on um, on complicity in it, and it, it, it's it's where it's where Hal, the protagonist, a sensible protagonist, is going through the sort of his his review of the position he's finding himself in in the tennis academy, and that um, the distance between all of his friends is affecting the stance of hip on we. Um, which uh, you know, which is to say, uh, a cool detachment, lest you um, get caught feeling uh, sappy or attached to anything in the world that could be taken away from you. Yeah, which is a perfect encapsulation of like, Hal's character, um, smoking mm. weed in the basement um, all the time. Um, so yeah, what gave you the idea to kind of combine this this book about pop music and capitalist mm. realism and cultural theory, and then mm. have this uh, these long asides about infinite jest? Did you just find it to be? Yeah. Um, a lens through which uh, you could best view um, the idea of how you know pop culture can be oppressive, entertainment can be oppressive. Um, yeah, but also it's kind of made that idea more complicated to me. Um, I, I, I first read the book uh, when I was going through my earlier kind of, um, I guess, road to Damascus post um, Adorno moment in my like early twenties, mm. and I was just realizing my own my own uh, arrogance from, from reading it or my own kind of uh, elitism um, as you kind of, because at the same time, yeah, this is a novel about how oppressive entertainment is and you literally have a film that makes people paralyzed by watching it because it's so gosh darn entertaining and compelling. Um, but at the same time, it, it becomes, you know, there's a, the character Don Gately, who is a drug addict who recounts, there's a recounts scenes in the, in the novel where he's, um, where he's just watching Cheers for the sense of family it gives him as a little kid when he was a little kid and his, his mom was kind of in this abusive relationship and he was just able to just sit there and feel at home. And, you know, as a poor, as poor a compensation as that is, it is meaningful. And the fact that you, you know, are seeking that comfort out can't be just dismissed as you've been duped by ideology, I guess. And that's what kind of drew me to it. And also when mm. it, it, it kind of ruptured my Adornian-ness in, mm. uh, <laughs> in reading it. And I think that's, because there's, there's just so much, I guess, respect for people living with contradiction 
and yeah, finding I, ways to this do is it. So, this is so like hitting me in the feels right now because so for people who are listening, we're recording this the day after Super Tuesday. And remember after the Trump election, how so many people were saying, oh, you have all of these deplorables, these idiots mm. who are voting against their class interests and they just mm. they just aren't aware. And then I am, I've been seeing it all day today. People saying, wow, you get all these people who are voting against social democracy, even though they're working class people, and it's not their fault. Ideology is one hell of a drug, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, mm. but do you not realize that all you're basically saying is that you, the enlightened, have escaped the cave? Yeah. That's yeah. what, and, and that they are the dumb idiots who are still stuck mm. with an ideology, but we, the pure, are not. Mm. And I see this so often, and I think it comes from a certain empiricist reading of Marx, which is yeah. this idea that if somehow we can just break out of commodity fetishism, if we can just release the bourgeois tendency of exchange value to reproduce itself and release the truth of use value, then we can actually get to the real understanding of the mechanisms of history. And then the job of the socialist theorist is just to heighten those contradictions so that we can be aware of it mm. to spark our humanity or something like that. And you see this so much with like, and I love Jacobin to do their thing, mm. but you see this so much with like certain writers of Jacobin that's like, well, we can just release our like psychological potential, which is all just very like post-Freudian ego psychology stuff that again yeah. I have a problem with. And I see this all the time and it just doesn't feel right with me. But at the same time, it's so rampant on the left, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's yeah that, that's basically my, my whole thing is it wasn't going to be mm. enough to just go through pop music and say there's a contradiction, there's a contradiction, there's a contradiction because... Sure, <laughs> like you've just discovered that the product of capitalism is uh, is, is entirely entangled in capitalism, and it's um and and I think that actually Infinite Jest is a great um is a great resource for telling you that it's not that is not enough um as a and I don't know if it gives a full picture of what would be enough, um, but it, it, I think it gestures towards it because also I think like I really love that book, but I also think there's a there's a, a conservatism in it which I'm a bit worried about um and there's also a little bit of a tipping the scale the other way from irony sometimes which i think isn't quite right considering the book is just heavily ironic and um <laughs> and really interesting because of it um and then yeah so i just started like trying to think how do i stick all these things together like because i want to i need to deactivate i wanted to use it to deactivate that part of adorno that i thought was not helpful and mm. um but then also to kind of also serve as a sort of weight to the uh, the, um, the, the the kind of the like post um cultural theory stuff, which kind of just goes off into everything is great. There's a nice yeah, there's a nice line in um, in uh, Steve Goodman's book Sonic Warfare, which is a great exploration of Spinoza through sound, I guess, um, where he talks about the the kind of like the, the, these just perfunctory celebrations of mediocrity that. Uh, some areas of pop music studies have become, um, and I, you know, we want to try and like actually be able to say that and make that claim. And I think there is, I think that novel does provide um, some of the resources for that. And then actually, the more I ended up studying it and looking at it at the same time as all this, you find apparently there's some really interesting readings of the book as a critique of Lacan, which I thought was useful to um, play through as well. Mm. Um, yeah, I thought that was super interesting. I had I'd never kind of um, thought of Infinite Jest as in some sense a critique of of Lacanian psychoanalysis, but you say that, mm. uh, I think I even have it written down here, that Wallace has it that the Lacanian gesture to point um, to uh, the tension between um, frustration and melancholy, which is inherent mm. in capitalism, as the origin of all the troubles 
all that troubles us mm. internally is myopic and the resolution mm. of this tension can only be regressive um mm. yeah when did that idea come just kind of as like a eureka moment for you because I, I don't think i've ever heard anything about um sort of which is yeah which is strange because like this the source of that like i didn't really figure that out as an idea but this is yeah this is like marshall boswell's reading it in, in this this book called understanding david foster wallace so it's like this kind of like very much a secondary text but then i kind of like think through it and i think like what is the consequence of that reading of it and i think what I think Infinite Jest then becomes is this sort of experiment as like, what if the ontological and existential claims of Lacanian psychoanalysis are entirely correct? Well, then what happens if we posit the object Petier that you actually can access? What, what happens if you, if you place that, or you break the model with that? And then when you break the model with that, you kind of realize there's, there's gotta be more. <laughs> there has to be a little bit more than this. Um, and, and I guess that, I think, to me, helps me navigate where I think about concepts like lack, um, because I think of them, I can't let them become the existential condition in the way that so many other cultural theory approaches to such texts, to, to things like pop music become, um, because it's, it will always be explained by lack. <laughs> and if you just have that as this, as this kind of black box, then I'm like, and yeah, so it really helped actually um, give support to my notion that, that lack is experiential, but it's, and it's certainly proper to our ideological conditions, but I don't think that it's enough to, um, to base a, an understanding of this material. So now we can talk about lemonade, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, okay. Great. The reason I ask is because it's really easy for me uh, when I'm not in my critical modes to just mm. hear the new Justin Bieber song and mm. be like, my God, it's the same words with the same beats, <laughs> the same inputs that some songwriter, probably with Justin's help, put this together, but it's all done through like... I don't know, focus groups and they're looking at trends and it's this totally manufactured algorithmic game for like the furthering of the stock price of whichever record company it is or and then whoever the financiers that are funding it. So there's a very cynical take yeah. that I can have on pop music. So how do you go from sonic fiction to hip on UE and this as being like a wonderful diagnostic text that mm. is maybe uh, post-Lacanian or kind of critical <laughs> of Lacan and pressing things into new ways to then looking at Lemonade and talking about that excess. How do you, how does the through line cut through them and kind of where does the text lead us? Um, well, I guess for this, I, I ended up drawing a lot on um, Franco uh, Berardi's stuff, especially his book, his big kind of theory book, And, um, which is uh, called, yeah, And the Phenomenology at the End. And he has this wonderful um, conceptualization of uh, treachery or betrayal in it, um, which I won't fully go into here, but I just kind of thought like, what if I think about uh, pop music as a sort of, somewhat sort of treacherous text uh, or like a treacherous um, cultural form that is, I, mean, yeah, putting, I guess putting this in the way, like a friend of mine who's not really in this, this world asked me at the weekend what my book was about. And I said like, well, everyone's miserable, but you know, we've got pop music and that's something. And, <laughs> And, and I think it's more about, okay, so this is the something, 
um, this is the stuff that's before us. You know, the sensation that people have, however misguided it is, that Beyonce will change and save the world, um, <laughs> is does point to, I think, something useful, something that can be mobilized or directed or, uh, or you know, it, it points to like a desire that I, I, I think that should be able to be utilized in some in some way mm. um and and just to think okay so let's treat this because i mean everything you said about like you know the the focus groups it's correct <laughs> but then you're done <laughs> that's the problem with it like you can you can just go well that's uh that's awful and then yeah that's bleak as by. fuck yeah. yeah yeah and 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 again this is the one of the things that i try and work through in the book is like you can be entirely correct and then you are you're defeated you know and that's yeah that's um what i kind of wanted to say like okay let's just suppose that you're not and that this is going to be there'll be some modes of like temporary alliance there'll be some modes of you know celebrating only partially like trying to actually you know do you know deal with it as problematic and you know in the in the proper sense of that term and and then see what can be utilized of that i mean this is what i try and like you know right now i'm, I'm doing lots of kind of uh, music journalist type stuff and I don't want to tell you whether I think it's good or bad. I want to tell you what I think is interesting about it. Um, mm -hmm. And if I don't want to tell you, if I can't think of anything interesting, I'm not going to write about it. Or I'll just really, really work hard to find something. But <laughs> that's a different, <laughs> a different do you, concern. Do you read um, The Quietus, Megan? Yes, sometimes, yes. That's yeah. what makes me think of the, the style of journalism. It's much more about what, what's interesting about yeah. this rather than is it good or bad. Yeah, that's the that's that's the uh, that's the whole thing. It's also like you know what you get from again like Mark Fisher talking about like uh, you know what is a critic? It's just like someone who is meant to amplify what's already there, you know. And um, and so uh, you you when you listen to so yeah we're back onto Lemonade, I guess um, what is interesting about it, I think, is the performative conservative backlash to it, because to me this points to a. A, a contradiction that capital is going to have to try and deal with, and that being that it's it's tied itself so much into this bourgeois liberal familialism um, with this white male center that you know even though we can criticize the appropriations of black culture to make money for this same complex, um, the fact that it's offensive to people does point to this kind of moment, this moment where the outside is is not entirely encapsulated but is now actually accessible to more people. And and it will be encapsulated. It will be contained, but the thing will change and mutate. The thing that it's within will change in its character because it's because it's it's now having to incorporate more stuff. And I don't know if that's actually the. I don't think it's a way out, but I think it's something that makes more complicated um, the situations. The, the, this situation. It's. Yeah, I, it's the problem. I have this this constant monologue going like, don't offer the the, the kind of platitude. It's uh, it's gonna be, but it it yeah it. So it, yeah, what I say is like it can. For a moment, it opens up other modes of being to a yeah. kind of mainstream audience, and it will of course be entirely subsumed by this. But we have to try and look for these moments. I think you know back to Mark Fisher. There's that wonderful close to capitalist realism where he talks about, you know, it's in the dark of night, you actually see how bright the kind of the, the, the gaps in all this are. Like there are, there is possibility. And I think that's how it can offer that, things like mm. Lemonade. 
Yeah, I mean, just to quote you near the end of the book here, you um, have a quote from uh, Bell Hooks about Lemonade, and then you conclude Mm. by saying, uh, this is where the constructive work begins, to build a relationship to popular music that can help us move beyond the cycle that causes us to use such music as a way to return to a home that Capital built. Yeah. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Oh, that was eloquent a few months ago. Um, yeah. <laughs> so yeah. here's here's the, the pushback question that mm-hmm. I have from my non-Dalusian friends. Um, mm-hmm. Is this not just fetishizing, like, vitalism or fetishizing mm-hmm. life with a capital L? Does this not just replace one set of maybe fetishistic uh, theoretical dispositions for others? Mm-hmm. I'm very partial to this. Um, from a theoretical (laughs) perspective because it does fit a lot with the way that I kind of tend to view things. But at the same Mm. time, I also understand at least two things. One, that it could maybe be that, okay, I'm at... I'm kind of I'm kind of replacing it from my own type of foundationalism, mm. a foundationalism of like unbounded potency or something along those lines, right? Yeah. And then at the same time, I'm also aware that it's very difficult to build a political project on this. And Deleuze and Guattari are very clear in subsequent like introductions yeah. or prefaces and things like that, that like Anti-Oedipus, for example, where they speak about desiring production is not a political project. It's social, it's artistic. Mm. Foucault calls it ethical, in his mm-hmm. preface to, I think it's mm-hmm. like the German or the Italian, one of the one of the editions, he says it's an ethical project, and that's his reading of it. Yeah. Um, and then you get some people that are like the reformists, and then of course you have the accelerationists that all mm-hmm. kind of take these Deleuzean and Deleuzean Guattarian yeah. ideas into different directions. But it's just very difficult mm-hmm. for me to wrap my head around as like a political project, yeah. and then also like that some people do say that oh, are you just not like fetishizing mm-hmm. like life and creativity and things like that, and that just doesn't yeah. really have a lot of gravitas, you know? Yeah, I, I, yeah, I get, I get that. I think also because I, you know, coming. Learning my Deleuze from um, Mark Fisher and um, and also Luciano Parisi, who's a genius, um, who are all like students of Nick Land. I have a little bit of that in me, I think. So mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. my my response to the notion that I'm fertilizing vitalism is that I my model includes death. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but like that is so like yeah that great but pretty interesting early Nick Land essay um, uh, making it with death where he talks about the the sort of anti-vital the, the anti-vitalism of, of creation um so i i would push I, my pushback would be to say that i would like to complexify this model further and to say that mm. you know we are the yeah so I, you know also because yeah there's ne- it's never unbounded i guess is my other thing like it's always because of beyonce's career that beyonce gets to the position where she can do this which means she's already sold out a whole bunch of stuff and it means that she has a whole track on the album, basically like um, celebrating being worked to death. Um, what's it called? Anyway, <laughs> um, and and yet at the same time, there is that that tension. So you you you're basically trying to work out: can you push the enclosure me- the, the enclosure the enclosure uh, mechanism in more favorable directions for the the the, the fallible the, the sort of dying body that you inhabit? And the community that is also fragile and vulnerable um, that you're a part of. Um, so that, I guess, would be the, my my desire to want to make that more complicated. And I guess also why I kind of draw on this notion of betrayal and treachery in it, because like we're trying to actually betray a world that actually owes us that that has shown no loyalty to us, that doesn't love us back. Um, and at the same time, that is not necessarily the most stable foundations on which to do something. Um, and then what was your other point, <laughs> which I 
Uh, well, it was just like, a, a, can we, could we err sometimes on the side of like fetishizing like a vitalism? And yeah. then the other one is like, how do you have a political project? Yeah. This, and then you it's, know? and is that asking yeah. too much even to, is that like an unfair question? You know, it's a, I think it's an unfair question of pop music in like, I don't think it can have a political project, but I think it's like, how can it, we, we can, it's like a, we're going to utilize it in some way because it's in now, like I, I talk about it a lot as a kind of a, an atmosphere and like if that's our atmosphere then we're gonna have to draw draw what we can from it um and that might mean that's how we you know how we converse talk about how we how we decide what's important um but yeah i mean i don't yeah i mean i think if yeah. there's a political project here it's in the, <laughs> mm. the extremely broad sense that it's yeah. reconfiguring how we deal with popular culture not as this yeah. sort of negative force which just grants us catharsis and then makes us apolitical but that yeah. we can actually um, use in a positive way. So like, you know, to use a Kantian term, we're basically mm. saying this has got to be a practical postulate that popular mm. culture can actually be in some sense instrumental and constitutive of a political project, even if itself is not, you know, the political project exhaustively, um, yeah. which seems both, you know, appropriately humble, right? It's not saying that pop mm. music's going to change the world, mm. um, but also it's going to actually give you some practical um, yeah. like syllogisms to enact, not just mm. sort of uh, dampen you and make you apolitical. Mm. Yeah, it's like, I guess, like, yeah, I mean, like, to tie that to the, the thing we talked about earlier, it's like, it's a thing that, you know, dares you to contest the future. You know, that's, mm. that, that there's a sensation there you're wanting to chase and, like, recreate and reproduce and share in, in that experience. And that is a temporal desire. It has to happen in the next instance. And so that, I guess that, that's the thing is like, you know, that the, the affect of popular music is to say, you know, I guess, yeah, that to, to will that it would go on, <laughs> to will that this kind of uh, enjoyment or connection could go on. Um, yeah. Hmm. I was, um, John Roth is a, a Deleuze scholar and he did a series on difference and repetition and the way that he describes uh, the third synthesis, mm. third synthesis of time, is the eternal return of difference, mm. as the uh, forever guarantee of the death of identity, and mm. I really liked that. Um, it mm. might be a bit of a psychoanalytic reading, but I do think that it's there in difference and repetition as well. But yeah. it's that perpetual guarantee that identity is going to die. So there's this yeah. is like a very anti-vitalist reading. Like you get Peter Howard's reading of Deleuze mm. that is all like mystical vitalism or whatever, but then John Roth is very much a materialist reading mm. and. And I really like that because it does add that mm. different component that you need to to understand Deleuze's thinking through of his like synthetic synthetic logic. Yeah, that I mean that. Yeah, I think that's the proper theoretical grounding of what I was trying to get at. <laughs> yeah. 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 Austin, were you thinking at all about being fourteen and listening to Rage Against the Machine when we're talking about all this stuff? No, you know what I was saying, though, is you guys made me feel really good about sitting at home watching Saved by the Bell when I was a kid. <laughs> and I was thinking to myself, hey, you know what? At least it's something, right? Yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And it gave me a home when I was like, you know, my mom was at work and stuff yeah. like that. And I did. Yeah. Saved by the Bell was my thing. So. <laughs> no, I well, think yeah. That's, yeah. Yeah. Even though we're talking all, all about the you know positive potential of pop music, Macon, mm. you end the book talking about Shoo Shoo, which <laughs> really warmed my heart because I don't think anybody but you and me know about Shoo Shoo. What yeah. made you what decide is this? to end the book that way? So Shoo Shoo is like a um, kind of like a crazy. I mean, now they're kind of like almost like droney, dark ambient um, mm. kind of indie uh, rock band, but they've mm. undergone a lot of um, transitions over the last like 
they've been mm-hmm. around for like 15, 15 years or so at least? Yeah, I think, yeah, because like, yeah, since like, the, well, actually, it's probably since around 2000, 2004-ish, so yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Maybe, maybe earlier, Jesus. Yeah, um, yeah, they, well, that, I guess they're kind of an example of, of um, this process sort of working on me that I sort of just, uh, try and describe in the last chapter, which is that uh, through some sorts of experience of my life, through writing all this book, through writing this book and trying to like figure out this kind of stuff, I kind of reopened to that music. So this was about, like I listened to them when I was a teenager and then kind of promptly forgot about them because they were just too hard to fit into my schema of what a person was in a certain way. I, I just like, it was cause it was this, this it was desolate, but also fun, <laughs> but also horrifying and, and energetic. Um, and then, you know, as I've kind of expanded my, my sort of ability to comprehend what, or, or conceptualize these affects, um, I realized, okay, so it's actually, I was just really uncomfortable with a music that has a certain a certain kind of queer darkness to it, like mm-hmm. in, in this kind of queer theory sense of, of the term, um, and that really, yeah, it, it, working through this this book, this the, the thesis into the book was just like, huh, yeah, this is actually this is what this stuff is, and this is why it's important. There's actually there is something changed about my conception of identity. I guess that part of the identity has died in some way mm-hmm. when I can when I conceptualize the affects of this music. And, and, and the willingness to, or the potential within like this field, because I guess this is the, 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 the tension, which is that, um, you know, Beyonce will always end up betraying us for the corporate overlords and Juju will never be listened to by other people other than me and Troy. Um, <laughs> and, but still this kind of this vernacular way of expressing things to each other, that might be, that, that, that has to be something that we can use. Um, and the, the ways that you know, various you know, barriers to entry to doing this have come down in the last 20 years and the way that it's no longer a viable career for almost anybody says that maybe this can in some way be ours again. <laughs> um, it's too hopeful. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, that's, that's all, yeah. That's, I, it's, mm-hmm. The hopeful note of ending on Shuju is, uh, is uh, yeah, a little a little joke, I guess, in its own. So, way. <laughs> uh, I, mean, I don't know if you know, but I'm actually uh, producing the cinematic adaptation of mm-hmm. Inventing the Future that's coming out any day now, um, mm-hmm. and we're just trying to figure this out. But so, the director of the film, Isaiah Medina, he has a quote from an interview that he did, you know, like a couple years ago, actually, when we first mm-hmm. announced that we were going to be adapting the book by Cernick and, uh, mm-hmm. and Williams, and he says the task is to invent, not merely to mm-hmm. hope, yeah. and. I thought that there was something wonderful because our entire approach to the film, which is obviously not the same as music, so the question is, are we mm. dealing with different, uh, different modes of being, maybe, um, perhaps? But the the point yeah. is, is that it's kind of an embodiment of this mm. same kind of idea that Nick and Alex are talking about that comes out of the CCRU that I think really latched mm. onto a lot of the stuff that you were saying that resonated quite a bit with how the conversations that Isaiah and I had in trying to do something that was visual. Mm that was going to have conceptual elements, but that at the same time needed to be affective through and through. And that this idea, this mantra that the task Mm. is to invent, not merely to hope, was something that we constantly thought about. Because when you hope, you're using the tools that are at hand. You're using the resources 
to like discursively theorize based on these like reflective ideas but invention might be able to circumvent that or navigate through mm -hmm. that or beyond that or outside that or something along those lines yeah to put it really succinctly hope is it may not be passive but it's not it's definitely not sort of mm. proactive right there's mm. a sense when you're reacting when you're hoping towards mm. circumstances whereas inventing is is obviously proactive right there's creation there mm. um, yeah yeah which is of course like it's it, it's, a, it's a situation which is only possible if you have a certain degree of like stability or comfort or or, or, or you know it, it's or you know the resourcefulness of because you don't want to make the invention because i really am to, the, to that this entire position but you don't make the the invention into this kind of re-emergence of a kind of crusoe figure <laughs> you know that mm. kind of mm. um and I, yeah because i also like being in the land of um of uh, Kierkegaard, um, the, the whole thing with hope is a it's, a it's a fraught discourse here, and I've had many arguments with people about it. But uh, a, a guy here, which I think maybe you guys should talk to in the future, this guy uh, Michael Kraus uh, Franzen, um, has this. It takes this kind of idea from Kierkegaard of like hope is only um, like hope is only possible when there is no no longer any. <laughs> um, so there is a kind of there is a there is a proactive form of hope you can find in certain approaches to it. But at the same time, I guess, because I think invention, again, there's a certain hope that's going to work. Uh, yeah, these things are so tied together. I've not made anything clearer here at all. Um, yeah, I okay. feel like, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's almost like it's this endless process of, of scraping away the, the meaning of one concept and then allowing certain residual elements to make connections with another concept that we mm. scraped away certain mm. meanings. Yeah. And so hope and yeah. invention, yeah, they're similar, but there's also, again, it's that excess. There's there's something mm. that we can peel back that mm. it, from the, the, the kind of idea of hoping that Troy was talking about, that we can allow that there's something that is maybe libidinal, uh, excessive, yeah. vital yeah. To, to kind of poke free so that even yeah. in um, uh, a thing, I, I was thinking too, not just about lemonade, but I was thinking about um, Childish Gambino's, um, yeah. is it this, was it this Is America, that yeah. song? And yeah. I was thinking about that and... And I, and I talk a lot with a friend um, here in, in Sydney who he's a, a philosopher and he's much more pessimistic about the potential for creativity of pop music and pop culture in mm. general. Whereas I mm. tend to think like, no, there's, there is that excess that is beyond. And mm. when you think mm. about a music video like This Is America, yeah. Yeah. there's something beyond words, beyond mm. thought, beyond mm. te technological determinations, beyond... Yeah capital enclosure there's something that is yeah. that is escaping when those fucking images pierce yeah. my soul yeah. you know yeah i think this is yeah i'm actually trying to um i, I write a little bit about this america in the book and I, I i'm trying to flesh it out into actual full article because i was just struck by the amount of critiques of that work that don't mention the music ones <laughs> mm. like there's just like yeah. the, there's lots there's think pieces about how problematic the visuals are it's like yeah but the you, you miss that the entire song is about code switching right <laughs> you miss that you're mm. going between different discursive structures of like here's this acceptable narrative of like the kind of mlk civil rights like church choir kind of joyous um like uh, the the um the sort of uh what's what's the term it's from the, the kind of rede redeemed um black subjects of america oh subjects is the wrong sense um but and then actually no there's something else there's something incomprehensible and this is also why steve gubbins book is great because he talked about the the political potential of base um, because it problem like it is a problem for discourse, and it will disrupt things. Mm -hmm. And the prizing of these sort of mid frequencies of the the discursively <laughs> comprehensible 
is to is like to say you basically you're, you're prizing the um, the white guys that write things down and, and read speeches to each other. Um, so I was I was at uh, an art gallery here mm. in Sydney, uh, God, last week, and there was an exhibition there, and I can't remember what the name of it was, but it was all about shadows, mm. and. I became struck. I was in there, and I got—I was with my aunt. My aunt was visiting, and I got overwhelmed by thinking about how normally I think we take light to be, let's say, the preeminent element, right? And that a shadow is like an encroachment on the light. And mm. I think a lot of mm. this comes from a certain religious discourse. Mm. I think even there's maybe a masculinity in this as well. That's yeah. the constructive. It's logos. It's the word. It's mm. it's the forcefulness of creation, right? And then yeah. shadow is like this residue that we're always like trying to push in the background or that's dark or that's scary that's oftentimes feminized as well mm, um yeah. and we talked a little bit about this uh, a couple weeks ago with lars Iyer, who was on here in his book nietzsche and the burbs and mm. uh, troy and him were talking about all of this like noise metal stuff that i don't know but they're yeah. like it's so <laughs> slow and grungy yeah, yeah. and primordial yeah. and you're talking about bass and then i was sitting in yeah. this 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 fucking exhibition and i'm thinking about shadows and i'm starting to think like god maybe maybe our existence like the vital impulse is our neurotic need to push away the shadows and the darkness and then i'm thinking mm. all like maybe we are just essentially shadows and all this shit and i'm sitting there and my aunt is like <laughs> oh look at this beautiful thing and i'm like i'm fucking overwhelmed <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I think that's. I think it's the same kind of motion. It's that. It's mm -hmm. that notion that, you know, <laughs> in a more banal sense, it, it, I'm reminded of the, the the cliche that I hate where people talk about how sunlight is the best disinfectant because, like, well, no, because things that are illuminated often grow really well, like weeds and stuff, um, <laughs> <laughs> or you know, get the infection spreads. Um, yeah, I think. Yeah, it's it's like those are the kinds of spaces I guess I'm kind of interested in 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 forms opening up. And I think like one of the reasons why I think pop is an interesting way to do this is because it's already an entirely appropriative form. It's already just like ripped off blues music um, that has been mm -hmm. gone through like various kinds of iterations and recombinations. And, you know, it's like this space where we can maybe throw a kind of spanner into the, into the kind of like the, the territorializing machine <laughs> in its mm -hmm. own way. Um, but is I, there is there some sense in which there's like a a theme here of if we can save pop music we can save anything? <laughs> yeah, maybe. Yeah, I like that. Um, also, maybe it's like I think I think my position is like it doesn't need to be saved because I guess yeah that I'm I, I wonder if we can we can realize the yeah the kind of hegemonic or despotic power of of, of resisting capital in some sense. I mean. Yeah, I don't think it needs redemption. I think redemption is the prop, one of the problems, um, because then we're just going to fit inside this this problematic system's definitions of um, worthiness. I guess. Hmm. Yeah, I've gone really abstract here. But yeah, well, yeah, and then yeah. I'm thinking that yeah. there's, there is the opposite of redemption. Then just it, not to go full on Nick Land here, like you were talking mm. earlier, but like that acceleration mm. of yeah, some sort of deep metaphysical nihilism. Yeah, that's the that's the kind of the the worry, and I guess also what you know the thing I appreciate about a thousand plateaus is every chapter has the same structure of like, look how free you can be. Now here's how it kills you, um, <laughs> and I think that's that maybe is the sort of the kind of space I wanted to try and like apply directly to to um, pop music and say like, look, there's all this space we can play in. This side is going to end up um, just taking you back to the start again, and this other side is probably going to kill you. <laughs> um, <laughs> But you can maybe navigate it, and maybe it can be useful to you as a 
as a flow, you know, it, that you can move through. Um, hmm. But again, with that kind of Adornian weight of, of it's going to kill you or it's going to oppress you. And, <laughs> yeah. hmm. So, you know, you mentioned throughout the book making um, this line, famous line from Mark Fisher, that uh, hmm. it's easier to imagine the end of capitalism hmm. than the end of the world, right? And yeah. you have like a, a way of trying to reinterpret um, yeah. that idiom. Can you talk a little bit about that? And maybe we can use this as a way to, to segue yeah. out. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so I, I, it's obviously like that's the kind of the big cliche of like leftist theory circles because it sounds so dramatic um, and it is rightfully dramatic. <laughs> and, and then my reading of this is given how like sort of intolerable Mark Fisher found the world both, you know, it, from knowing him in person and also from reading his work, you go, well, maybe we should be ending the world. Maybe considering our world is so tangled up in these in these codes that capital has helped formulate, maybe it should be it should be end like if there is a beyond that, this one is over. And maybe that's we should be okay with this. There's you know, there's this uh, great um I think he works for Verso, uh, uh Italian young philosopher called uh uh, Federico um, Campagna, he just talks about how the fear of the end of the world is a very kind of Anglo-Saxon um, hmm. sort of capital liberal subject point of view, because from his point of view of like, you know, being from Italy, the world's ended many, many, many times before and it's going to keep doing it. And it's maybe we just have to interrogate what we're, what we're attached to. Um, that being said, I don't want to romanticize that as if that would be an easy thing or that it would right. be in any way necessarily egalitarian. Um, this is like, you know, the, the anxiety about the kind of nihilism that is that could be implicit in this and why it requires uh, longer books on different things to actually get at. But I kind of I want to place that in a, in a discussion of pop music that maybe we want to have a different world where where our, our vernacular and folk musics of the present day can can do other things. And isn't it always the case that you don't realize that another world has been created until it's after yeah. the fact, right? Yeah. And and yeah. you sit there and you look back and you're like, oh shit, we mm. this is a different world. So mm. there's a sense in which it's like almost an unconscious mm. action or mm. or flow, and that as soon as it yeah. becomes either pre-conscious or even conscious then it will automatically be foreclosed by the control mechanisms of kind of the determinant conditions of social production. Yeah. Um, but then I guess we could also then say that, you know, the moment we're kind of living through right now, like both with uh, the disappointment of Super Tuesday and uh, <laughs> the disappointment of the December election um, in the UK yeah. is, we're, you know, we're living through a, a lot of people who are seeing the world as they know it come to an end. <laughs> and... Yeah. Um, and and there's a there is a struggle before it as well. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, I was talking with family recently, and there was a very you know from middle class suburbs in Southern California, a very real fear amongst them and their friends, older generation, mm. white middle class, maybe even some of the middle upper class, that Bernie Sanders is going to somehow take away their seventy years or sixty years of hard work, and their housing yeah. prices are going to devalue and things like that. So there is yeah. a real sense in which you yeah. mentioned this earlier that just the idea of something that seems to be transformative, even if it's just fucking social democracy, it's not like mm. we're talking yeah. about a Stalinist, uh, you know, <laughs> utopia here or something mm. like that. But that it 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 
it threatens their mm. comfort and their yeah. lives so much that they they have such a, a hard a hard time even accepting that this wouldn't just be catastrophic for them. Mm. I think yeah. I mean this this is one of the you know, maybe a kind of a uh, casual use of the term, but you're disrupting a theory fiction in a certain sense, aren't you? You like with with this invitation mm. to change the you know there's a theory about how the life is how life is going to play out and and it's and, and that there's a certain justice to it a certain narrative structure to it and and there's obviously downsides to it but the downsides that we are aware of um and the offer of saying let's take that away and replace it with even something yeah relatively tame like social democracy it's yeah mm-hmm. it's it's frightening because there's a lot again it's also a little investment as well like an identity like it's it's the holding on to the the the, the death of identity that's holding on to the identity that will inevitably die mm, mm. um yeah I, I i can't i can't fix this with my book though i don't think it's <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's great troy did you yeah. have anything else you wanted to ask about infinite jest before i get us out of here as quickly <laughs> as possible no <laughs> i mean so many things but you know i'm gonna go ahead and uh Press down, you know, press the libidinal <laughs> urge to talk about infinite jest from the beginning. So. It's, right. it's best that way, otherwise it's it will just I've ruined so many evenings. <laughs> Maybe we can do a bonus episode where uh, I just sit back and I just ask you questions because I haven't read it and you guys just talk about infinite mm. jest for yeah, 30 we'll, minutes. Yeah, we'll 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 test it afterwards and see if you can just write the entire thing out from our conversation. <laughs> Hell yeah, deal. <laughs> great. Well, well this has been cool. great, Macon. Thanks so much uh, thank- for, for coming on with us. Well, thanks, thanks for letting me come on. As I say, I've been a long-time listener, and it's um, kind of surreal to actually have to respond to what you guys are saying. <laughs> no, this is cool. I, uh, I really enjoyed the book. It's funny. It doesn't have immediate practicability for my current project, mm. but because you're kind of situating it within the post-GFC crisis, mm. then it, 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 there's some theoretical stuff here that, um, that I actually was like, oh, fuck, this is actually a really good way of framing certain things. So I think it'll, oh, thanks. it'll be useful as a, as a resource for myself as well. That's well. That, that, that's um. That's great to hear because uh, I don't really know where this book belongs. So um, trying to place it wherever I can is uh, <laughs> in front of the, in front of the eyes that I think um, might appreciate it. Uh, but that, yeah, great. Cool. And well, I always so feel good every time I listen to Sons of Kemet. So that's good for <laughs> me too. Fantastic. Because yeah, that was yeah. I got, yeah, there's some good references in this. <laughs> <laughs> Sweet. Uh, but, well, cool. Well, yeah. uh, I guess we'll let you take off, and um, yeah. we'll hopefully just chat with you soon. All right, so thanks so much to Macon for coming on and talking about his book, uh, Pop Music and Hip Anui, with us. That was super fun. I really enjoyed talking a little bit about uh, cultural theory, not always about um, politics and philosophy, yeah? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Although we combine all the things together. Yes, I can't help it sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> So you know what we got to do now before we get out of here, Austin? I'm ready. I'm it's ready. It's the sticky leaves, man. Yeah. This is where one of us talks about whatever it is that's bringing us meaning in a potentially meaningless world. So, Austin, what's doing it for you? When your life is lived as a nerd researcher, you have ups and downs where sometimes you're motivated and other times where you lose that motivation, right? And sometimes it could be just a small thing that motivates you and invigorates you. You have a great conversation with a friend. It happens with you oftentimes. Like before we did this podcast, I was really tired and I was kind of a little bit, not down in the dumps, but I was just like, oh man, I I just wasn't in the mood for it. And then I was like brushing up on my notes from Macon's book and I was like, okay, I'm kind of excited to talk about this. And then through the course of the conversation, I'm like reinvigorated now 
right? Mm. This happens to me when I teach. It happens to me when I'm in some sort of seminar setting or at a conference. There's something infectious that kind of like sparks me back to energy. Well, it could also be something simple about just getting a new toy. And my new toy facilitates my research in a way that I was not expecting it to. And I have to thank you, Troy, because you were the one who really encouraged this and then told me about an app that I could get to help facilitate my research even more. My iPad is the best purchase. (laughs) Yes. And my iPad is the best purchase I have made for my academic work ever, ever. (laughs) Okay. First of all, I feel really cool carrying it. Okay. (laughs) Uh, I feel like I look like I'm, you know, like, like in the future of those movies, the futuristic movies where someone has like a pad that they have on their arm and you like walk up to them and they're like, boop, 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 and they kind of like just press the screen. Like, I feel and like they have I'm the auditory one of beeps, which just no future technology will have. Yeah. Everything's just going to be silent, but I still, <laughs> I, I can imagine in my mind, I hear the sonic sounds. Um, so, but I feel like I'm one of those people, first of all, but second of all, Um, I've been doing mostly all my reading on a laptop for the last nine-ish years, I would say. Um, And this is mainly because of convenience, because I've been traveling, right? Mm -hmm. But the problem with my laptop is that it's a little bit clunky, and you you know, the battery runs out kind of quickly, and you've got to plug it in. And for some reason, the way that the laptop is set up is not as nice as the iPad is. Now, I also got the iPad pen thing. Which, the stylus thing? Yeah, which is amazing, dude. Because I can like draw in the margins and I like to handwrite things. So I can take notes and I can make like little diagrams that make no sense to anybody else but that <laughs> make sense to me. And I need that shit because there's not enough room, one, in the, the margins of regular books, like actual tactile books. And then on my laptop, I couldn't do the draw thing. So I have this pen in my hand, so it makes me feel like I'm taking notes in a real book. Plus, I feel like I'm in some sort of futuristic movie with the fake beeps that don't exist. And then on top of that, <laughs> the ease with which I'm able to actually read these books is so great. And so tell people the name of the app. What is it? Good Reader? Yeah, Good Reader. Okay, and it's not Good Reads. Because I, I downloaded that one at first, and I was like, wait a second, this sucks. This isn't the one. Yeah, it's good <laughs> it's it's good reader, and it is just a great app. I can do all the annotations that I need. I can highlight. I can underline. I can make notes in the margins, and then I can use the stylus pen where I can star things and then circle things and question marks and be like cross-reference Sartre's CDR, which is what most of my notes are in the margins. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I can do all of that shit, but it's just been – it has reinvigorated my love to research in a in a weird way of saying that um it's just kind of made me feel like there's an ease of access to my work and then when i have that that energy level then i'm able to concentrate in my work more so i just want to recommend and i just got the cheap version of the ipad and by cheap it's still like you know i think they were like 500 bucks here in australia um but everything's expensive in sydney so it might be less in the states but i just got like the cheap one and it's been fucking great It's been great. I can still watch Netflix on it too and like YouTube and shit like that, which is better than my phone. And again, it's just more, it's sleeker and it's easier to carry around with me than my laptop all the time. So it's, it's been fantastic. It's been absolutely fantastic. And I, I I have to say thank you. And I have a feeling that it will actually yield good results for my research just because of this reinvigoration that I have. Yeah, dude. I mean, there's something about, um, finding some new like technological innovation that makes reading note-taking and everything else simpler, easier, even just more beautiful. 
right? The way the mm. GoToReader app is laid out, it's a little complicated. So maybe the first couple of days you're using it, you're a little lost. Mm -hmm. But once you kind of figure out how to navigate it, it's really well organized um, and aesthetically pleasing. And like the little bookshelf, um, you have the bookshelf uh, view on where you have all the books that you're looking at at once. Oh God, I don't even know this. I have it open with me right now. How do I do it? Which one? Uh, is it? I think if you just like press X in the top left when you're looking at books, it'll go to like. Oh a, yeah, 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 totally. Yeah, you can configure that differently. It's like it's so, it makes everything so much better of an experience, right? Um, mm. I I still do love the feeling of you know and the smell of like having a real book in your hands. Like I, I'm still nostalgic for that. I think anybody who was born pre 1995 uh -oh. probably has I that sense, you. right? Um, but. I can't go back. Like it's just too great mm -hmm. to have access to basically every book you would need on a certain subject, all at once, um, available before you, and searchable and editable, and yeah, it's 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 all just too perfect. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I I feel like I have the romantic idea about holding a physical book in my hand that I still love, and there's something to the one thing. The one thing is the the brightness of the screen, right? The blue screen. It is not good for your eyes. It does make you, especially at night, if you're trying to read, it keeps your brain awake and stuff like that. Whereas, you know, that nice kind of off-white papery color is great. I love mm -hmm. that. Um, and I love that feeling in my hands. And it, as silly as it sounds, I feel like I'm a part of a tradition when I'm reading a physical book. And yeah. I lose that a little bit when I'm reading on the e-readers. You also can't go to the cafe the, and show all the ladies that what you're reading. Yeah, you need that, man. I mean, how am I supposed to pick up chicks <laughs> so that they know that I'm reading something deep, like Ovid's Metamorphoses, so they can come up to me and tell me how it's problematic, and then I can be like, I know, I understand. Here's the feminist <laughs> critique, and then we can get into a really lovely conversation, and they can see that I'm sensitive, and I'm a feminist, and I'm, you know, cool, apparently. <laughs> I don't know. You can't do that anymore. I, I, it's, it's, someone was making a joke about that on the train, because with the Kindle, it was like, you can't do that. And I was like, yeah, man, my game has really been ruined, because someone can't tell that I'm reading, like... <laughs> you know, Howard Zinn's of people's history or something like that. And they can't tell that I'm progressive or some shit like that just from the cover. There needs to be a, a, a really small, wide, um, like LCD screen on the back of your iPad that just displays what you're reading. <laughs> or have it like a little hologram that like shoots up the top that just wrote <laughs> and it rotates a little bit just so that everyone can see. <laughs> oh, Jesus. Yeah, but it's great. I love it. So... It has a lot of other functions, too, for people who are out there who have been debating for a while. It took me a long time. I mean, what is this, 2020? And this is my first one. I know a lot of people are like, dude, duh. Like, we've had one of these for ages. And I'm like, yeah, I know. I was a little bit slow with trying to figure this out. But um, it's great. Oh, and the new one is great, too, because I can actually record. Like, it's got GarageBand. So if I needed to, like, for some reason, I could actually record GarageBand on here. It's uh, It's got all the functionalities that I would need from my laptop. It's just in a tiny, sleek little package. Hmm. So, yeah, it's cool, man. It's really good. They don't have USBs on them, though, right? No, but I've got the little converter thing. Oh, it can convert to what, like an iPad port? Well, so my converter has like a, a multiple plugins because I have to use that anyway for my microphone for my laptop because my laptop doesn't have a USB port. Ah, Because yeah. Apple is moving to, it's called like, the small USB, like instead of the regular USB, it's the USB mini or whatever the fuck it's called. Yeah, my new laptop has that too. I haven't figured it out yet. <laughs> so stupid. What We're is the old. deal with that? <laughs> I know. I know. I don't even know the name of it. I'm like, this little <laughs> USB thing. <laughs> but yeah, so. All right, sweet. I guess we should go ahead and wrap up the episode there, yeah? Yeah, yeah. Awesome. 
As we said at the outset, go to Mubi, Mubi.com slash Owls at Dawn and get your free 30-day trial. Check out Macon's book. It's really legit. Um, what else? We'll go to Patreon.com slash Owls at Dawn. You can support us that way. And I think that's pretty much it. Yeah, dude? Yeah, you know all the ways to find us on the Twitter and the Gram and through email and all that stuff and through the internet on owlsatdawn.com. Cool. Well, I think there's nothing else we really got to say unless there's something burning you. Just one more thing I can think of, dude. What's that? Das Vidania Americanti. Yeah.